can be seated and we'll dismiss our um, school-age kiddos. They can head to the back with Mr. Crenshaw back there. While they're doing that, if you would open your Bibles to Acts uh, 21. Acts 21. And we're going to continue uh, through our series um, in the book of Acts. If you're new here, we started the book of Acts uh, almost a year ago. Uh, last February, we've been walking through it uh, chapter by chapter for the most part. And we come to this last little bit. Um, and I think God's got a lot to say to us here um, I hope it means as much to you as it has been to, uh, has meant to me as I've been studying it and reading it and reading it and reading it. Um, I think it'd be spiritual and pastoral malpractice not to mention that uh, um, you read the headlines uh, in our newspaper of recent, um, and we're in a pretty dark time. And it's just a very sharp reminder that, uh, that there is a spiritual battle going on all around us, um, the forces of evil. You know, Scripture calls um, our adversaries Christians uh, the devil, that he's very real and he's coming after us and his influence um, is seen uh, sometimes through the end of a gun, um, sometimes through um, sexual exploitation, sometimes through sometimes even through a religious um, apathy that seems to grip the church. And uh, I think what even we're talking about today, that there's great hope. It's, scripture's not silent about this. Um, it communicates very clearly that there's a real evil, but also that there's a real hope in Christ. And I think we're going to see some of that um, in, the words of, um, <clears throat> in the words of Paul today, although Luke's the one who's writing this. Um, the last half of this passage uh, this, of the book of Acts, really the last third of it, chapter 21 through the end, chapter 28, it's really a third of, of the book, is really about uh, Paul's encounters as he takes the gospel to Rome. And uh, we saw in chapter 20 as he's headed there, um, constrained by the Spirit, he says, uh, to take the gospel even to Rome and we're going to see uh, just some incredible things here. We're going to see Jesus uh, show back up and speak to Paul. We're going to see uh, his trials. Ultimately, it's going to lead to a house arrest in which he's going to write many of the epistles, his letters to these early churches that we have today. Of course, all of this God-ordained. Uh, ultimately, Paul will be killed, although that's not uh, in the book of Acts. He'll be killed by um, Nero. And so we're going to walk through a lot today, and so I hope you can just kind of track with me. If you don't have an actual uh, old-school Bible uh, with the pages, which is kind of a rarity today, um, uh, we've got some of it on the screen, but I would encourage you to find it on your device or some way as we're going to attempt to walk through a couple chapters. If there's a theme of this section, um, to me, especially what we're looking at today, chapters 21 through 23, I would maybe entitle it... Uh, the secret to the Christian life is found through complete surrender. Complete surrender. 
Back in chapter 20, verse 24, again, you're going to be familiar probably with this as we've uh, talked about it for a few weeks. He says in verse 24, Paul saying, But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's the same thing that Weston was alluding to earlier and Jason even earlier, that the gospel should be on our lips. We should be able to speak the good news of Jesus into situations of victory and to situations of defeat, to, in the midst of darkness and hurting, in the midst of success. That the gospel, as Colossians talked about, that our speech should be seasoned with salt. It should just be coming off our lips. When To be around us should be an encouragement to other people and not just in a formal way, but when we gather at the coffee shop or at dinner or pass each other in the hallway, that there should be uh, this edification that comes from our mouth because what God is doing in our hearts. And this is what Paul's saying, that he has surrendered his life to the lordship of Jesus. And I think in this section of Scripture, this could be the theme, one of complete or absolute surrender. Church, there is incredible power in a life that is completely surrendered to God. Paul practices what he's preaching in these last few chapters. We're going to see this. Some theologians call this the trials of Paul, and it's certainly that on many levels. As he goes from city to city, place to place, court to court, being beaten, falsely accused again and again and again, and all he does is just speak the gospel into that situation And it has encouraged my heart and convicted it on so many levels as I studied and wrestled with this passage. Let's jump in in chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and then to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we come to Cyprus, it's a little island there that you probably remember in the Mediterranean. Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and then to Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed. We went on our journey. And they, with their wives and children, accompanied us outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. A similar scene as you saw in Acts 20 as they're weeping because you're probably not going to see Paul again. This is kind of a travelogue and, 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 and I think the details are important. We're going to come back to some of these. It says in verse 7, when we finished our voyage from Tyre, we arrived at um, Ptolemy and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed, came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, we saw him last in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, actually correctly announced a plague that was coming. He came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belts and bound it around his feet and his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, get ready for this, man, this is so foreign in our mind and theology today. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart, Paul says. I'm 
For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Remember, that was Paul's goal. He wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. That's why he couldn't go back through Ephesus. That's why he went to Miletus, called the elders to meet him there. He's making a beeline to Jerusalem. He wants to get there on the day of Pentecost, and he's going there not because of his own will or fruition. He's going there because he says again and again that the Holy Spirit is leading him there. And again, we see this attitude in this heart of Paul of completely, a completely surrendered life. Church, there's an incredible power that comes from a life completely surrendered to God, that you lay your yes on the table and let God put it wherever he would want to. It's a power that you will never know as long as you're the one in control. It's a power we will never know as long as we're the one at the wheel. It's a power we will never know as long as we're the king that sits upon the throne of our lives. But if we will give that position to King Jesus, there's an incredible power that comes into the life of the one who has yielded everything, even the direction of their life to Jesus. Now the question is, how do we develop this into our life in an increasing way? And I think this passage gives us a clue as to how Paul lived this kind of life. First, Paul had a singular purpose. Verse 13, again it says, For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He is headed there, again, constrained by the Spirit, that he wants to honor God with everything that he does. Again, we briefly touched on this a few weeks ago, but there's a great danger, church, in having a divided heart. And that's certainly the culture we live in, where most people in our culture might consider themselves Christians on some level, that they believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's a distance between this belief that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's, There's a distance between Christmas Jesus right? And this Jesus that Paul speaks of, there's a difference. And there's a, there's a, there was a difference even in the disciples' lives, how initially when they met Jesus, they, they, they left everything and they followed him and they began to walk and learn of him. And as he began to do these miracles, how many of them end with the disciples looking at each other with this uh, bewildered look like, oh my goodness, we're really in the presence of someone who can control the winds and the waves, And ultimately, we see formed in these disciples' lives as almost nearly every one of them died a martyr's death, except for John. Somewhere in their walk with God, they went from Christmas Jesus, right, to Revelation Jesus. Revelation Jesus, we see Jesus coming back, right, as as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and riding on the white horse, the sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, this is a different Jesus than Christmas Jesus, and I think the question for us is, is which Jesus do we really worship? Because everybody likes Christmas Jesus, the Jesus that came to save the world from their sin. We, li- we like that. He's kind of cute and cuddly, uh, not really interfering in our life too much. But this, this call to follow Jesus, the call even Jesus gave his own disciples, was not one of this cuddly Jesus. It was one of him being Lord of our lives, master of our lives. And I feel like even if you're honest, and, I, and I'll be honest today, we live in this tension of a divided heart because we want all the benefits that the kingdom of God offers, 
But, but we, don't want to, we don't want to bear our cross on the way there. We want, we want heaven now here on earth. And we pray that and we should pray that. But the glory in its fullness does not come now. The cross comes now. That's why his, the call of Jesus to us again and again was to de- deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. We see in the life of Paul that he had this very singular pers- uh, purpose. James 1 warns us that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's no double-mindedness in Paul. He knows why he's here. He knows the one thing that's in front of him, that his goal, that his whole life orbits around this one thing, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to put everything obedient to Christ, everything in his life, his mind, his attitudes, his direction, his resources, everything submitted to the lordship of Christ. To the church at Philippi, he would encourage them with this same message, In verse 13, but one thing I do, he says, look at the singularity of purpose, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1 of the same book, he would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? It's clear, Paul had a singular purpose, not a divided heart. And these things kind of all intermix with each other, the next thing that I think that we need to develop in our life or allow the Holy Spirit to do this work in our life so that we would see and live out a life of absolute surrender is a sensitivity to the Spirit's prompting. Again, back in chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there exactly, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, there seems to be a little confusion here. Paul says, the Spirit's telling me to go, but in in chapter 21, we just read that not only that his friends are saying him, telling him not to go, but even Agabus is prophesying, and even Luke joins in on the train saying, hey, he's trying to convince Paul not to go. Verse 4 of 21, through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go. Paul says the Spirit wants him to go. They're saying through the Spirit not to go. Is God flip-flopping here? Are they not hearing the Holy Spirit correctly? What's going on? Let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit is telling them the same thing. Hey, trouble awaits for you in Jerusalem. Even through the prophecy of Agabus. He's not not getting that out 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 of nowhere. Trouble awaits for you in Jerusalem. These Christians in Tyre are hearing that, and they're interpreting it as he shouldn't go. If trouble's there, avoid it at all costs. It sounds a little like our theology, does it not? And here's the mistake a lot of Christians make, and I want us to hear this. Many of us think the goal is to dodge hardship at all costs. That if the Holy Spirit is telling us that we're fixing to walk into a season of pruning, or if the Holy Spirit is telling us and preparing us that that there's danger in Jerusalem, there's danger ahead. If you make this decision to follow the Spirit, you're going to face some hardship. If we're not careful, we'll back away from that and say, oh, well, God must not want me to endure hardship. And that is certainly just not the truth of Scripture. They sense hardship from the Spirit, these disciples, and they say not to go. And Paul says, I sense the same thing. But the result of his hearing the Spirit is not, hey, you shouldn't go. It's, hey, you should be ready. You should be ready for what lies away. It's all about expectations, right? If your vision of the Christian life is one that is free of pain and difficulty, then you're going to be disappointed by God most of your life. Because the call to be a Christian is not that. 
What did Jesus even say? Hey, you know, you should consider the cost before you come and follow me. That being a disciple of his, he says, is like putting, his, putting your hands to a one-handed plow and not looking back. That there's going to be difficulty ahead. And if you think the Christian life is this prosperity gospel that all of life is going to be easy and free, heaven here on earth, then you're going to be confused. You're going to think maybe you're not doing this right. Maybe you're not saying the prayers right. Maybe you don't have enough faith. When pain and difficulty comes, you're going to get mad at God. God, where are you at? And I'm not sure how this became part of the Christian narrative. Jesus didn't make it through without suffering. Certainly not. John the Baptist was killed by beheading. Before Peter would be crucified upside down, he says in chapter 4, in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When the trials come, I love how he says that, don't act like something strange is happening. Don't sit there and say, man, my marriage is difficult. God, where you at? My boss is being a jerk. God, where you at? The hospital called with a negative report. God, God, where, where you at? Peter says, this is going to happen in the life of a believer. Paul certainly faced difficulty at every turn. He drives this point home in his uh, 2 Corinthians 4. You're probably familiar with this passage. He says, listen to these words. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Every way. If you can think of a way to be afflicted, Paul says, that's what's happening to us right now. We are crushed. I just don't know where the prosperity gospel comes in this. We are crushed. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, and we're struck down. Who wants to be a Christian, right? Does that sound like a life without pain? James would be so bold to go on to tell us that we should have joy in our life when we face trials of many kinds. Not like there's one singular trial that we have to walk through, and if we get through that, this on the other side is just so easy. No trials of many kinds. Paul keeps his singular focus and his ear to the Spirit of God with this resolve that my life doesn't matter. This is not about my happiness or my comfort. It's such a great picture of absolute surrender. Look back at verse 12, chapter 21. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. You see, it says we there. This is Luke getting in on the action. Luke was one of Paul's travel companions, and he's writing this mostly without him in the story as just an observer. As soon as the Holy Spirit starts talking to other people again and again, and they're hearing this message, Luke's like, well, man, maybe we should not go to Jerusalem. He is pleading with them. Verse 13, but Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was listening to the Spirit of God, not necessarily the opinions of others. Look, he was not even discouraged by their opinions. Their opinions didn't alter the course of his conviction one bit. Not that he wasn't influenced by others' opinions or that we shouldn't value or take advice from others. 
Proverbs 15 says there's wisdom, right? In the abundance of counselors, we should listen to others, but only to an extent. When the Holy Spirit has spoken, and he's spoken through his word, don't go try to find advice from someone else who's going to give you a more comfortable word. And that's a lot of times what we do. We don't want to walk the hard road. We don't want the narrow path. Yeah, we want to go to heaven, right? But we, but we, want, we, want, a, we want a path of ease and comfort along the way. Once God has made his will clear, we should hold to that course no matter what anyone says. Here's the truth. As hard as it is for us to accept God's will for our lives, and sometimes that's tough, certainly, it's often much harder for the people we love to accept God's will for our lives or for us to accept God's will for others' lives when it includes difficulty. As one theologian says, be careful not to get between the hammer and the work. As God is chiseling us to make us look more like Christ, as he's leading us, be careful not to get between the hammer and the work. God is trying to do something, make something, start something. And if we're not careful, we're going to douse the fire of God as he's working in the lives of those people we love because we don't want them to suffer. And don't look at me so stoic as that's like not, like not something that you deal with. Think about your own kids' lives and how God loves them more than we could ever love them, and yet he is committed to conforming them into the image of Christ. And that means certainly there's going to be some difficulty that they walk through. This great example of this by one of the great missionaries, first missionaries to Burma, Adnarm Judson, the first Baptist missionary from America, Headed to Burma, he married a lady named Anne Hazeltine on, uh, in 1812. They boarded, a, they boarded a boat two weeks after they had gotten married, headed to Burma. They had a rich marriage and fruitful ministry. About a month after uh, Judson had, uh, had met Anne, he wrote a letter to Anne and basically was a proposal to, uh, hey, why don't you marry me and then go to a corner of the world that you've never heard of, likely never to return. She didn't answer it for several days, and I understand if you're going to do that, make sure you heard from the Holy Spirit, right? Make sure this is, you know, not some bad food you ate. When she finally did, she evaded the question saying that, uh, that he would need to ask her parents first for their blessing. Here's the letter. Adnarm Judson sent to Anne's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. He's really winning them over. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of heaven and the hope and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world that is to come with a crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the lost that are saved through her means? from eternal woe and despair. I can't even imagine asking like that, right? 
I went in with like this smooth uh, talk, you know, had a pie chart so Ashley's dad could see that I was, you know, at least I hoped to take care of her. He let her go. She went there, several years of ministry. She would die there in Burma, never to come back home and see her family again. And if we're not careful, through the lens of the American dream, we will look at this story and we will say that this is a tragedy. And through the lens of the Heavenly Father looking at her, he is standing at the right hand of Jesus, applauding her faith, her attitude of absolute surrender. Listen, parents, don't douse out what God wants to do in your kids because they're not going to be close to home. Don't warn them about following what Jesus is really doing because they might be uh, persecuted or made fun of. Teach them to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting, certainly confirmed in his word, and then support them with what God's doing. If we're not careful, we're going to hinder through our poor advice, God's will in the lives of other people. What if God calls your kid to the mission field or the other side of the world or to plant a church somewhere in a very difficult place or to adopt a child from overseas with health issues that they're going to deal with their entire lives? Be careful not to give bad advice because they might walk through some difficult seasons. A few years ago, I heard a popular Christian pastor and personality who's taking questions from the TV audience and someone called in with this very same thing. A mom whose kids, grown kids, were going to adopt from overseas. You may be familiar with this story. And they asked him the question on air, on TV, and then he replied, you know what, I would tell them not to do it. We just have no idea what's going on with these orphans over here. We have no idea what they're raised in. We have no idea with, with, the, with, with the mental issues and the physical issues, and my blood began to boil. How dare him tell people to not walk in a life a crucified life. We're carrying our cross, remember? We don't come to Christ so that things can just be peachy in life, right? We don't come to Christ. We don't come to Christ so that we can access the American dream. That is not the point. The point is that we would live a life of absolute surrender. That we would say even as Paul, I, you know what? I don't care if I'm going to be beaten Jerusalem. That, that's not even, I, I don't care about that. There's something so much greater going on right here. And as he walks in obedience, that he is full of joy and peace. And we see this again and again in his life. The truth is a Christian life is going to be filled with difficulty. Paul faced it around every corner from the Jews and Gentiles, friends and strangers. It leads to kind of my last point for this section. Again, these are all kind of in, intermingled. His singularity of his focus, that he, you know, Lord in the center of everything. The Holy Spirit's prompting. And then finally, this perseverance through difficulty. On this road to where you're going, this Christian life, this conforming into the image of Jesus, on this road to where we're going, there's going to be many exits that, promise comfort and you're going to be tempted to exit and find something of the easy life and my encouragement to you and Paul's encouragement to us is don't pull off the road don't stop pursuing God don't stop listening to the spirit don't stop obeying him let's keep going in verse 17 
When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us. Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. Notice that James is here as the head of the church, not Peter. Some in church history kind of got that wrong. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What is then to be done? Paul gets to Jerusalem. You kind of get the picture, right? He's excited to go see James, report on everything that's happened with the Gentiles. They throw a little party with punch and cookies, and they say, man, that's pretty amazing. But let me tell you, Paul, the Jews here are pretty upset with you. Thousands of Jews, it said, had come to Christ. They have believed, yet they're still zealous for the law, speaking on the law of Moses, the ceremonial law and the moral law of Moses, that they're keeping to this, the ritual to have, uh, you know, the, the right way to enter the temple and not enter the temple. And they're all saying about you, words kind of got out, Paul, about you, that you're, you're reaching all these Gentiles, the Jews among the Gentiles, and you're telling them to forsake Moses, and you're telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. Is this true? Is that what Paul's teaching? No, he's not teaching that. This is just false accusation. Church, be careful not to believe things you hear. Right, Because this is where the enemy kind of stirs up. Right, He's the accuser of the brethren, not only in your own mind and heart through shame and guilt, but even through the words of other people, gossip and slander. Be careful not to just listen to what you hear. And I love that, that Paul doesn't just get irate. What happens when someone falsely accuses you? And they're just kind of like, I didn't do that. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even say that. Why don't you call this person and see if I actually said that. I, I didn't say that. Well, you, you want to quickly defend yourself. What if it's someone even saying, you know, false accusations about your spouse or someone you love, even get more irate, right? But Paul didn't say any of that. He says in verse 21, then, you know, what, what's, what are we supposed to do? James says, they're certainly going to hear that you've come. He gives... He devises this plan so that Paul can prove himself as one who walks in truth. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is speaking of a Nazarite vow that was normally taken for 30 days and uh, which you didn't touch anything dead. You remember the Nazarite vow. You can go back and read that in the Old Testament. You didn't cut your hair. Normally it was done in 30 days as a way that we might even do some sort of fasting. And we're going to really be intent and focus our hearts on God. And these men had done this vow. He said, take these men and purify yourself along with them. Meaning take their way of life. And pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. That means the vow would be over. The point was that Paul would take these men and go into the temple and he would provide the sacrifice. And that would be his blessing on, hey, I still support this. I still support this thing in the law. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have said and been told about you, but that you yourself also live in accordance of the law. Now, Paul had a lot to say about the law and about gospel, and you can go back and read the entire book of Galatians. That's his letter to a Gentile group of people about the law. And, and, and there, there's, you, 
to really understand it, you've got to distinguish between the ceremonial law, how we, you know, clean ourselves and, uh, you know, how we op, uh, you know, observe that ritual and the moral law, which Jesus didn't do away with. He actually amplified it up. Um, read his words on that. But Paul agrees to do this. Did he have to do this? Certainly not. Was he doing anything wrong? Absolutely not. But in order, you know, even Paul says that to the Jew, he became like a Jew and to the slave, like a slave. Remember that? This is, this is what Paul's doing. Like if these things are going to offend them for me to live in my freedom and to use my freedom, then I'm certainly going to forsake them. I don't want my life and my freedom to be a stumbling block to other people. So he willingly submits to this. Again, under the heading of perseverance through difficulty, He gets there, celebrates with them just for a moment, then finds out, oh, this is, there's some people really upset with me. So he does what they've offered. Look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment. And you remember that from several chapters ago of what he's asked them not to do. To abstain from uh, things that have been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what's been strangled and from sexual immorality and Basically, what they're saying is you can't become a Christian and still act like a pagan. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went to the temple giving notice the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, this is probably that group from Ephesus that caused such a riot before chapter 19, Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. I love that, this, that they're just you know, making that so absolute. He's teaching everyone everywhere. If there's, if there's anyone anywhere, Paul's teaching them this. Against the people and the law and even this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed, again, we get a lot of danger by supposing things, that Paul brought him into the temple, which he certainly had not. All the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, you couldn't go anywhere. And as they were seeking to kill him, a word came to the tribune of the cohort. The tribune, he's like the commander, the cohort's a thousand soldiers. And that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and he ran down with them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember the prophecy by Agabus, two chains, hands and feet. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. And he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Sound familiar? The same thing that they said of Jesus. Away with him, crucify him, get him out of here, kill him. And you see Paul. If you read through this passage, we're not going through the whole thing. If you read 21, 22, and 23, you'll kind of see this story unfold just again and again. Paul says, okay, I'm going to be here. He's not, he's not getting hot-headed. He's not, he's not reviling back. He's persevering through this difficulty, through false accusation, through incredible pain. On and on it goes. A life of absolute surrender. 
Church, there is such power, supernatural power, that allows us to live this kind of life, enduring false accusation, being physically beaten for something that you believe in. Didn't Jesus say this would happen? You remember John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, we might not ever face an angry mob like Paul did here, but there's certainly a season of difficulty that we've walked through, that we're walking through, or that we're about to walk through. And I feel like there's several in our faith family walking through some extremely difficult things right now, coming from every side, it seems. Afraid to answer the phone as if it's going to be more bad news. Again, our community is walking through some really dark times. Our hearts so heavy for some of the recent events that have come to light. Paul could identify his heart so heavy. He went to Jerusalem to reach the people that he loved. His people, Jews. And all they did was want to kill him. But he knew if they would only see Jesus... If they would only know Jesus, then everything could be changed. And if we're not careful in our darkest hours, we'll have a pity party for ourselves. But not Paul. He just wanted to see Jesus formed in him and through him. We don't have the time to go through the full part of chapter 22 and 23. I do encourage you to read it. It's a pretty neat narrative as you follow along. But let me summarize it for you real quick. The commander of the tribune is going to take Paul back to the barracks. But before he goes, he says, hey, could I, could I stand up and give a defense to this angry mob? And he uses an orders gesture. And he begins to speak to them in their native language. He begins to speak to them in Hebrew. And he shares his conversion experience of what had happened to him. Maybe you remember that in Acts 9 and how God showed up. On, he was on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians. And uh, this light shone. And, you know, this, it, Jesus was talking to him. And, how was the people with him didn't hear it and how his life was incredibly changed and he had scales over his eyes. You remember the story. He went back to the, to the place and Ananias came, prayed for him. Scales fall off, fell off. He's hoping that they would see the gospel. He's not defending himself. He's hoping that they would see the gospel. Even if this is his last breath, he hopes that they would see the gospel. He wants the gospel to be formed in him, even at the risk of certainly being beaten again and killed. Look at how they respond. You would hope that there would be this like, you know, I surrender all starts playing in the background. Billy Graham calls people even from the balcony to come down. Verse 22, and up to this word that they had listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting, they weren't just shouting. They began throwing off their clothes and flinging dust into the air. You want to know when it's a riot? When people start throwing their clothes, right? And they start kicking. They're they're like an angry bull at this point. They just just want him dead. So Paul's taken back to a holding cell, and they're going to beat him there. And this time he speaks up before he gets beat. And uh, and says, you know what, I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, well, let, you know what, we're going to arrange. This is chapter 23. We'll arrange for you to you know, in a smaller setting, to speak before the high priest and the council. Chapter 23 and verse 10. He does so, and again, um, no I surrender all in the background. Verse 10, he speaks. 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Here's Paul at every turn, beat again, beat again, beat again, just trying to do the right thing, just trying to say the right thing, just trying to speak truth, just trying to love people. And at every corner, they don't accept it, they reject it. But I don't want us to miss this part. Look at verse 11. Man, this is so good for my heart. The following night, the Lord stood by him, said, take courage. Paul didn't know what he was expected to find in Jerusalem other than difficulty. And he was doing the right thing. Maybe this ever happened. You ever, you ever just been beat down so much? Again, not physically, but with words of other people, walking through a heavy season, bad news from every side. You've been so weary and so tired, laying in your bed at night, asking God this very thing, God, where are you, man? Where are you? Surely this is what's going on in Paul's heart even now. It shows a vulnerability to him. Of course, Luke doesn't speak to that because he didn't know what's going on exactly in Paul's heart. Just from Paul retelling it, look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. These are some dark days for Paul. And Jesus wants him to know, I love it, says that he stood, stood by him. You remember the Great Commission? Matthew 28, go into all the world. You remember the end of that? And it says, and, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul, Paul knew that Jesus was with, was with him, certainly, but he needed this reminder. His heart needed this. You can look at the Great Commission in every one of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and you see the presence of the Spirit in every one of these that God says, listen, I'm going to be with you. Dark days are ahead, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be walking with you. In the early 1900s, a preacher from South Africa named Andrew Murray wrote a book with this title, Absolute Surrender. He talked some of Paul and certainly of Jesus as we can think back to the scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, Lord, anything else but what I'm about to walk through, would you deliver this bitter cup? Not my will, but yours. This is this prayer of surrender. I'd encourage you to read that book. It's still in print, which is pretty amazing, a hundred and something years later. It's a collection of prayers and devotional thoughts from Andrew Murray under this title, Absolute Surrender. This is his prayer, and I love this. It's been so encouraging to me. I, I printed it out so that I could read it to myself again and again. I think I have it on the screen. May not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, love, and joy of God's presence. And not a moment without the entire surrender of myself as a vessel to him to fill full of his spirit and his love. Is that not the picture of what Paul just walked through? To fill full of his spirit and his love. If we can be honest, I think a lot of us are in this in between of this, you know, and I want to follow Jesus because I do believe he's the son of God and I want to go to heaven when I die. 
Yeah, what we struggle with is this submission piece. We struggle with this surrender piece. I remember in my life, I felt God calling me to some sort of vocational ministry, and I didn't remember what that would look like. I had been pretty focused on making a lot of money, and I knew ministry, at least not the ministry that I'd been subjected to up to that point, could make a lot of money. I remember being in a hotel room on a youth retreat, um, weeping in my bed because I felt God calling me to take this next step, to place all my chips at the center of the table, to give him true lordship of my life, of my finances, of my future, of my vocation, to be all in of sorts, to surrender, absolute surrender. I remember in hours that seemed like in that hotel bed, me just fighting with God. God, I don't want to do this. I remember praying, God, I'm in, but you're going to have to do this in my heart because I don't want to do it. The coming months, God just began to do this incredible work in my heart. And I think this is the decision that's kind of out there for us. Even those of you who have been a Christian a really long time. It's this move from Christmas Jesus to Lord Jesus, right? And I think that's the call of obedience that he sits out in front of all of us. Will we take that step of obedience? Joyfully submit all of our lives and our family and everything under his lordship. The psalmist says that's where true joy is found. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take communion. Communion is such a great reminder of this. Of God's presence with us. Of his love for us through the cross. Of us being family together. Let me give you just a few moments. I just want you to spend some time praying. As the Holy Spirit has prompt things in your own heart. As he's, as he's working. Listen to what he says. When you're ready in a few moments, you can come take in communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but a follower of Jesus and desiring to be obedient to what he asks you to do. Maybe you're in here today and you don't trust him. You've you've never come to this place where you've even put your faith in him at all. And I would pray that you would take that step today. Let me pray for us. You do what God leads you to do. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. For the example of Paul, a life that is completely surrendered to you. His singularity of his focus, his ear to your spirit, his perseverance through really dark days. All the while just wanting to speak the gospel to the people that you love. Lord, form that in us. Would we be a church, a faith community of absolute surrender? Well, wherever you go, we're going to follow. And for some of this room that are maybe on the fence, I pray you give them the faith to jump in. Trust you. I thank you for this ordinance of communion and how we can be reminded of the gospel of your death proclaiming your death until you come again. Holy Spirit, 
Continue to do work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You come when you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. There's no 